Hello and welcome to another episode of Turkey Book Talk, episode number 163. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Noah Amir Arjamand from the Center for International Media Assistance and Indiana University's School of Global and International Studies. He's the author of Fixing Stories, Local Newsmaking and International Media in Turkey and Syria, published by Cambridge University Press. The book is a detailed ethnographic study of the role of fixers in international news coverage and journalism, specifically focusing on cases related to Turkey, Turkish politics and the war in Syria. In all those cases, fixers, who are basically local intermediaries on the ground who grease the wheels between journalists, media establishments and local sources in order to produce news coverage, played a key and often under-acknowledged role. We talk about all that, the challenges faced by fixers on the front line in Turkey and Syria, and some of the ethical questions thrown up in our conversation. But before we get started, let me remind you that our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 can be found at turkeybooktalk.com. We're on Instagram as well now, just search for Turkey Book Talk Podcast, all one word. We're also on Facebook and Twitter if you want to follow on there. And remember, you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you numerous extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. If you'd rather read these interviews and listen to them, then you're in luck because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, 3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, 3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our interview with Noah Amir Arjamand. I started by asking him a broad question really, for the uninitiated. Who or what are fixers? Certainly people outside of journalism tend not to know what fixers are in this particular context. I mean, fixer, right, it's kind of a vague term and it means a lot of different things in in different contexts. And in fact, even in journalism, it can be kind of an ambiguous term. It's, It's kind of journalistic slang, really, for the people who are kind of the local guides and interpreters to foreign reporters. So, you know, sometimes this takes the shape of a reporter covering a very large geographic region, is flying into Istanbul the next day, 
to cover some big breaking news story. They don't speak Turkish. They don't really have contacts in the country. And so they ask their friends, their colleagues for a referral to a fixer, or maybe they find one online. And what the fixer th- does then is really hooks them up with sources, you know, provides logistical support, helps them get around, explains the background context about what they're reporting. So it really plays a very important role in, in kind of shaping the reporter's experience and understanding of the place they're reporting in a relatively short amount of time. So it's sometimes kind of a fixer-reporter relationship is this kind of transactional one-off or, or occasional, you know, a reporter kind of parachutes in, again, in, in journalistic slang, wants to report a story quickly. They need a fixer to get them the right contacts and to, to produce the story basically efficiently. In other cases, though, fixers and their relationships with reporters get a bit more complex, perhaps. It, it kind of, you do find fixers and reporters working together in the long term, almost in kind of relationships of like mutual apprenticeship, where you have fixers kind of learning journalism. Often these are people who have their own aspirations to become reporters themselves, maybe reporting from other countries or maybe covering their own countries as the you know official authors of the news as reporters themselves for the international press. And so they're kind of learning journalism. And then reciprocally, reporters that they work with are getting a much deeper understanding of Turkey or, or Syria. And through kind of the mediation and, and help and partnership with the fixer are themselves changing their own perspective, maybe perhaps questioning their assumptions about what's going on in the countries and kind of what the proper frameworks are to understand the country. So very broadly speaking, fixers then are kind of brokers, mediators between foreign news organizations, foreign reporters and local sources, local events and information. Now, the book is based on um, extensive ethnographic research over many years. But to illustrate your thesis, you don't use real names or even real episodes in some cases. Instead, you use composite characters imagined or combined together from the research. Just explain that process and why you took that route. Sure. Yeah. Well, I they are real episodes, uh, but the characters who introduce who get names named in the book are composed of multiple real people who participated in my study. And yeah, you know, my decision to create composite characters instead of kind of doing what ethnographers typically do more or less, which is just change the names of people to to protect them was precisely that for reporters, for fixers, what they're creating in the world is, you know, public knowledge. So it's very easy to look up reports that I mention in my book, and it wouldn't be that hard to kind of figure out deductively who's who if you really set your mind to it. And this could put people in danger, you know, because I, I talk about journalism both in, in Turkey and coverage of Syria. And in the Syrian case, of course, journalists have been killed since the outbreak of civil war there at, at appalling rates. In Turkey, journalists have, have been thrown in jail quite a lot as well. And I do quote people and, and describe them in the book, often behaving in ways and, and doing reporting that might displease, to put it lightly, the, the, the Turkish state or the Syrian state or various militant actors in either country. 
And so I, I thought it was important to kind of do a little bit more than just change names. As, as much as those kind of outside actors might be a threat to journalists, also I was very concerned about people's reputations within journalism. Because, you know, the way that fixers find work basically is, is overwhelmingly through kind of a personal network within journalism of reporters who are happy with their work, who trust them, who trust their discretion also, and who refer them on to colleagues. And so I have lots of cases where fixers are speaking very candidly about the tensions and, and about the ways that they hated working with particular reporters. And so I, I kind of didn't want to put anybody at risk of professional harm either, but, but to allow them to kind of speak candidly. And you've worked both as a journalist and as a fixer in Turkey, I believe. What insight did your personal experience give you that fed into your academic research? That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I kind of decided early on that I didn't want to just leave it at interviews, right? Interviews, sit down interviews are kind of interesting. You know, they, they what they show you is how a person wants to present themselves and their career. So that that becomes very interesting, for example, for understanding how people evaluate fixers professionalism, how they try to present themselves as objective about kind of the criteria for what what makes somebody a fixer versus a, a producer versus, you know, just a, a, a useful activist, let's say. But very often, you know, people tell you kind of what they think you want to hear uh, and also what makes them look good. And so it, it doesn't always tell you what people are doing in practice. And, you know, particularly this this was obvious when it came to like asking people about translation, you know, simultaneous interpretation or consecutive interpretation practices that they did when reporting. And of course, if you ask anybody, you know, how do you translate? Do you translate accurately or do you make things up or get creative? Everybody will say, oh, no, I 100 percent I, I translate with the utmost fidelity. But that isn't always the case, I, I found. And so it became very useful for me to work as a reporter where each story, each news story I would report on, I would hire at least two different fixers to assist me. And then I could kind of analyze how they led me in different directions, how, you know, the social position of that person, their particular skill set, their perspectives, how that might have influenced how my reporting turned out. And it also became a very useful because then I would record the interviews, the kind of three-way interviews of myself, a fixer, a source. And that became an important part of data because when you actually record things and then transcribe them and, you know, and play them back slowly, you can see all of the interesting ways in which just, you know, kind of at the word for word level, what a fixer, what, sorry, what a source says gets transformed through a fixer's mediation, kind of linguistic mediation into something that the fixer thinks and hopes will make sense to the reporter, in this case me, and, and also that will potentially kind of reconcile disjunctures or disunities between, you know, what, what the reporter wants to know and what the fixer is willing to give them or willing to say. So a lot of what I found was kind of this, this delicate, almost kind of repair work that fixers were doing in the process of translation. And I, I then myself also, because I had decent Turkish going into this, good enough to, to get hired as a fixer and decent context, I, I was also able to experience what it was like to be in that role of the intermediary between reporter and source and, and found that often in ways that I absolutely didn't even have the, the presence of mind to, to think of when I was in this extremely stressful situation of, of doing simultaneous translation. Even I would be kind of in, in ways that 
I would notice when I played back, be inserting little explanations, kind of folding them into my own translations, how I would be maybe taking out certain words without even realizing it because they didn't really fit what the reporter was looking for, these these kind of things. So it became a good exercise to understand kind of the, the micro level of fixing, you know, down to the word for word level. And then also, you know, I, I never got all that good at fixing. I, I, I did it really in the first half of 2016. I worked as a fixer. And really what could have been my big actually kind of career breakout had I wanted to go really go pro as a fixer was the July 15, 2016 coup attempt. It was actually after that point when I started getting a lot more clients, which is kind of a, a typical phenomenon that, that you see kind of every time there's some giant news story, whether it's Gezi Park or the outbreak of Syrian war or the, the 2016 coup attempt, you get a whole bunch of foreign reporters kind of flooding into the country, needing fixers. You get people who maybe were fixing part-time or maybe just spoke good English and knew some journalists kind of becoming ad hoc to even informal or in paid, unpaid fixers. So I, I kind of was able to experience myself, I guess, a, a bit the way that careers can begin in fixing and, and, and gain steam. And then I was also ex able to experience the kind of larger stresses and, and dilemmas of fixing, which often kind of take the form of, of trying to weigh the value, let's say, of a client against the value of a source. And, you know, you, you, you have to worry about reporters kind of burning bridges with sources by asking them wrong, the wrong questions, even just kind of annoying them by demanding that they speak to them very soon and answer a bunch of questions without kind of having a, a more normatively acceptable kind of back and forth chit chat and having a tea and so on. So you kind of have to worry about sources losing trust in you because reporters breach their expectations in, in, in some way or another or or offend them. And then you also, of course, are constantly having to worry about your reputation among reporters as as being competent and professional and, and so on if you want to continue working and get more referrals. Now, obviously, many journalists put hard work in for years, gaining deep local knowledge. But many of the reporters in the book actually come across as rather stupid, frankly. They're relying heavily on fixers after being basically parachuted in, pretty ignorant of the realities on the ground. And they're basically relying on others to do the work for them. And as you portray it, that often results in very major disagreements. Something else is that the lack of recognition that fixers get in relation to the reporters who you know, get the bylines, get the glory. Uh, is that dichotomy accurate or is it a bit more complicated? Well, yeah, I think there 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 is a lot of variety among reporters. So, yes, some of them are absolutely spending a long period of time in the country, you know, developing language skills and so on, gaining their own contact networks. Although depending on the story, really everybody, whether they admit it or not, and whether they are officially recognized as fixers, everybody ends up working with fixers or with kind of brokers, with intermediaries of some kind, particularly for kind of specialist stories. When it's in, you know, a place, a part of the country where nobody has reported before, you know, even even very well-experienced journalists based in Istanbul or Ankara probably didn't in 2014 have a whole bunch of local contacts, for example, in Soma, where there was a mining disaster. So, you know, unexpected things happen and you have to improvise and you have to work through a chain of local intermediaries, regardless of, of how competent you are or how, you know, how much you've tried to develop your own network. 
or just kind of the, the danger of the particular subject. You know, if you're working on, on drug smuggling or something like this, you know, it can become important for safety to have kind of a local in of a fixer who has a relationship with smugglers or, or drug dealers. But yes, yes. There, on, on the other hand, there are, I'd say, a lot of reporters who come in without a whole lot of background information and are very heavily relied, reliant on fixers. Um, and, and so this often kind of creates, I guess you could call it perverse incentives for fixers to be very almost kind of blasé and cynical about whom they introduce a reporter to. You know, it's not worth introducing a, a reporter who's just going to be here for one week to a very valuable source. And so you kind of recycle the same sources, the same, for example, kind of talking head pundits who are happy to talk to the media endlessly. You recycle them over and over again and they keep appearing in the news. But, you know, to, to also kind of be empathetic to these parachutist journalists, a lot of this is is not a matter of, you know, st- personal stupidity or anything like this, but a, mat- a matter of the way that the global media economy is changing. Fewer and fewer newspapers, television stations, and so on are actually able to afford to maintain long-term bureaus in lots of different countries. Fewer and fewer are able to have kind of a country correspondent for Turkey, for example, who's kind of just working full-time on that and is able to focus on really getting a deep understanding of the country. More and more, what we see is is that you kind of have staff reporters who are charged with covering a very large geographic area of the world. It might be, you know, the entire Middle East and Turkey or Turkey and the Balkans and all of Eastern Europe or something like this on the Caucasus. And so, you know, just by necessity, they they might really want to gain a deeper understanding of the particular places they're reporting on, but their very stressful work doesn't allow them to do so. And so, you know, they are just out of necessity, very reliant on fixtures because they're kind of bouncing around among countries. And so what you see kind of often developing among among those journalists is almost a kind of meta expertise of learning how to evaluate fixers and, and learning how to find the right fixer to get the job done and and how to avoid being led toward a, a fixer's particular political axe to grind and and whatnot. Yeah, that's a really good point on the economy side. I mean, what about the the squeeze on the journalistic economy globally? How has that affected fixers locally in Turkey particularly? Are there fewer opportunities in recent years? I suppose um, there are certainly far fewer journalists here in, in Istanbul and elsewhere in Turkey, I think, compared to just a few years ago and definitely less journalism being done. I suppose there are diverse reasons for that, really, not just political pressure, but this economic squeeze that we're talking about is is definitely one of the major contributing factors, I think. Yeah, well, you know, to, to some extent, the period when I, I was really focusing on 2014 to 2016 was kind of a boom time in Turkey. You know, Istanbul, certainly, and, and also to a great extent, uh, Antep, Gaziantep, for reporting on Syria were places that were, it wasn't that difficult to find work as a fixer. There were tons of reporters in Turkey working. And and also, you know, particularly because reporting in Syria had become too dangerous in the judgment of almost everybody by that point, almost all foreign uh, news organizations by that point, really there was, Turkey was a hub, not just for reporting on Turkey, but also on on the Syrian civil war and and more broadly kind of serving as a base of operations for reporters covering the region more broadly. And of course, this this was a time when there were Turkey was in the news for lots of other reasons, right? There, you know, successive ele- elections. I mentioned the coup attempt, the Gezi Park protests, 
the rise of ISIS, which was the biggest Tory in the world for really throughout like 2014, 2015, 2016. So to some extent, I kind of the, the moment that I capture is of a boomtown for a median for fixers. But I think even even more generally, fixers are still very much in high demand. And that's, as I said, kind of in, in good part because you have a business model or a system that's reliant less on country correspondents who are themselves maybe in less need of fixers because they're more focused on a particular country. And so you you kind of get people who are covering a very wide geographic region and are dependent on fixers. And so, you know, fixers are themselves in high demand. And then also there's, I'd say, maybe more opportunity also for fixers to be moving from fixing into themselves producing or reporting. There's, there's I would say that there's been, a, to some extent, a reckoning within journalism in a kind of post-colonial way of it shouldn't just be the white guy explaining every country in the world. There has been a move toward, you know, trying to get people from the countries who know those countries better to be themselves the reporters, the main producers, the main correspondents from the country. And so there are paths of upward mobility and, and fixers often have a, are well positioned to be pursuing those because they have good context. You know, some of the people I studied went on to go to journalism school where they could get a bit more kind of the credentials and professional legitimacy to be themselves respected as as reporters. And so I'd say, you know, for fixers, they are to some extent feeling the squeeze. And, you know, I, I would certainly I would talk to longtime fixers who would complain about, you know, the loss of the, the good old days in the late 90s or early 2000s when they could work just a few days a week for a TV crew and then be set for for the month. So I'd, I'd say, you know, day rates have have gone down and there is economic pressure on them. But at the same time, yeah, you know, maybe newer paths of upward mobility are available. And then, you know, the, the other thing to mention is, of course, that kind of the appeal or the value of the day rates that reporters pay are very much in flux. You know, and this is maybe something that's especially obvious in Turkey, where the currency has fluctuated so radically. So at a moment like this, when the lira is very much devalued compared to the dollar or the euro, it's pretty appealing to get paid in dollars or euros as a fixer, even if that may not look like a great day rate to the reporters who are paying them. Now, let's talk about some specific examples, because obviously Turkey is one of the world's most efficient producers of news, I think it's fair to say. And the cases that you look at in the book are covering a number of big news stories from Turkey in recent years, and also regionally. Perhaps the biggest, most consequential from a global perspective is the war in Syria. And obviously there are many angles to the reporting of the Syrian war over more than 10 years now. Could you just talk about how, in the case of the war in Syria and its ramifications for Turkey, what are the particularly salient things that the war in Syria can tell us about this particular question of fixers and journalism? Yeah, so I, I think that in in a lot of ways, the Syrian civil war set the conditions for the worst kind of international reporting in some cases. And I, th I think this was particularly true after around you know, 2014, 2015, when it became particularly dangerous to work in Syria, when, when you had militant factions in the country who viewed journalists less as potential mouthpieces, we could say, for getting their message out to the international community and more as either bargaining chips in, in you know, uh, ransom negotiations or income sources as, as kidnapping victims, 
or as potential pawns in propaganda as people you behead on videos and then distribute online. You know, so ISIS's press policy was was basically to to murder journalists and and publicize it. And so because reporters weren't really seen, because journalists weren't really seen as as neutral and because fixers who were working with them were seen as traitors and, and collaborators with with foreign intelligence services, it became extremely difficult to report within the country. And I do tell the story of, of one fixer who, in fact, got, got kidnapped with his team of reporters in Aleppo, uh, not by ISIS, but by uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, and held for a long time, you know, accused of being a foreign spy, or at least being eventually kind of accused of being an unwitting dupe to the foreign spies that he was assisting. Went through a really per- terrible period of, of imprisonment before finally being released. And it, for fixers like him, it, it was you know particularly dangerous because unlike the reporters they worked for, they couldn't count on their governments. And this was true more of, of European than American reporters. They couldn't count on their governments to pay ransoms or have their backs, or they couldn't count on the governments of their clients to have their backs. So, you know, in that particular case of Aziz, there was a multi-million dollar ransom paid for his clients. But as far as he knew, as far as I can tell, his freedom, his release was never even part of the negotiations. So it became very dangerous for for foreign reporters and for fixers to be covering Syria. And so instead, what you got was remote reporting, which, you know, some people managed to do very well, you know, building up great networks within Syria, who they would be chatting with on on WhatsApp and on, on Skype, kind of remotely trying to figure out what was going on and, tr- and trying to figure out ways to report the news that wouldn't reveal who their sources were, particularly if those sources were someplace like, you know, Raqqa, like uh, ISIS's capital. So there was good, you know, good reporting going on. But we, we also saw, you know, particularly as the, the Turkish-Syria border became this boom town, was really cynical, transactional fixing and, and fixer news organization relationships going on. And really what, what this would even take the form of would be reporters and news organizations kind of paying fixers a la carte to produce, you know, an ISIS defector or uh, an escaped ISIS bride or something like this. One of these very sexy sources in almost a la carte fashion, where it's, you know, you pay me 5000 or $10,000 and I'll produce an interviewee for you who will, you know, tell you all the horrible things that's going on within ISIS territory. And the news organizations would not check very carefully the legitimacy of the people that fixers were putting forward. And it created a tremendous incentive for fixers who, let's remember, were often desperate refugees themselves to be stretching this truth or, or even fabricating. You know, so I, I would I found examples and I, and I quote people as kind of describing incidents where somebody would find their, their cousin or their sister and tell them, OK, you're going to pose, you're going to pretend to be a member of ISIS's all-female battalion or, you know, an ISIS wife or something like this. You're going to give a nice interview to one of these news organizations, to one of these uh, TV channels that's not going to dig too deep. And you're going to tell them all the typical things we already know about ISIS or that we've learned from other sources. And then we'll split the money between the two of us. And so kind of this this system, I think, led to a lot of very, well, first of all, fabricated and also like derivative journalism where, you know, reporters' assumptions were not being questioned. They were being fed exactly what they wanted because they were putting so much money on the table in a situation where people were so desperately in need of that money. 
Now, this whole period was also a period of considerable domestic instability in Turkey, lots of bombings and the re-eruption essentially of the Kurdish issue after the breakdown of the peace process in 2015. What light does the Kurdish question in Turkey shed on the issues that you talk about in the book? Well, Kurdish fixers or or fixers who were specializing in eastern Turkey and kind of the Kurdish majority part of the country did have to be certainly a lot more cautious about state surveillance. So much, I think much more than reporters who are based in Istanbul, the people who I met when I was doing research in Diyarbakir, you know, they always assumed that they were being wiretapped, for example. So kind of there was a lot of sensitivity, even about like the medium of communication that they would be using for contact sources for for accessing sensitive information and so on. And then there was also very much a danger for them of being lumped in with quote unquote terrorists. You know, so for example, I, I talk about Noor, uh, this this Kurdish fixer reporting actually on the Syrian side, let's say, of, of the Kurdish conflict. So reporting on the siege of Kobani by ISIS in late 2014, when it was the, the Kurdish uh, YPG and YPJ, the Kurdish militias, Syrian Kurdish militias with helpful volunteers from among Turkish Kurds coming into to Kobani who were fighting against. ISIS. And, you know, this became a huge news story. There were lots of reporters covering this from Suruç, from the, the Turkish side of the border. And Noor was there. And the reporter who had hired her was very keen on sneaking into Kobani, kind of taking the same smuggler routes that that people who were going into to fight in Kobani or who were resupplying the city were taking. But ultimately, Noor refused because she she knew that if she were they were caught crossing the border in either direction, the Turkish authorities would assume or would treat her as a member of the the YPJ, the the Women's Protection Units, the of the, the Syrian militia. And so, you know, I think the the stakes were often higher for fixers reporting on the Kurdish issue. You know, the the fear of of or the threat of counterterrorism law being applied to them was greater. Certainly. And then the other kind of dynamic that I saw, you know, when it came to Diyarbakir in particular, was that relations between reporters and fixers tend to be a bit different, in part just because there weren't reporters really based in Diyarbakir. You know, there was during part of the time when I was when I was in the country, I think there was there was one Dutch journalist who who was based in Diyarbakir. She got deported in, I want to say 2015, 2015 or 2016. And so what happens much more is instead of fixers and reporters working together very closely for a long period of time, as you often find in in Istanbul, in Diyarbakir, it tended to be a much more, you know, a, a journalist coming and visiting for a few days, for a week, trying to pack in a whole bunch of stories about Diyarbakir and, you know, the region. They might go to, to Mardin, they might go to Urfa and so on. They might go to refugee camps. And so you got kind of the, the fixers, first of all, became, I, I guess, more specialist rather than kind of generalist helping reporters with everything. It became more specialist in, in reporting on, you know, the Kurdish conflict, on the refugee crisis, on, to some extent, the, the history of the Armenian genocide, because that, that was actually a, a big topic in 2015, right, the, the 100 year anniversary. And I think what you see a, a bit more is, is kind of an economy, again, where, where you get 
reporters who are kind of dropping in for a short period of time don't necessarily know too much about local context, which which creates frustration, I'd say, among a lot of fixers of God having to explain the same basic stuff over and over again to reporters who come in just like uh, newborn babies over and over again. But also, you know, some opportunities where fixers have a bit more perhaps of a free hand in introducing reporters to particular sources who maybe, you know, support their political agenda, you know, who are for pro-Kurdish movement fixers who are are themselves kind of representatives of of the Kurdish movement. So, you know, I give the example in my book, for example, about about one reporter who was passing through Diyarbakir in 2015. And this was right in the wake of PKK and Hudapar, the, the political party associated with Kurdish Hezbollah, killing each other basically in the streets in Diyarbakir. And he, after visiting Diyarbakir and working with this fixer who I call Nord, he came to Istanbul. We were chatting together and he, and he said, wow, it's really amazing how the Kurds just seem all to be on completely the same page politically. And I was surprised by this. And I, you know, told him about a, a bit about recent events. And he actually hadn't gotten a sense of that at all from working with Noor because she had directed him only toward leftist Kurdish movement sources. She, she you know, for a reporter who didn't doesn't know about political divisions in the region, in Diyarbakir, why introduce them to Hudapar representatives and, and give them that perspective if they're not going to know the difference? Yeah, and that really gets to this bigger thematic question, really, of fixers obviously not being very, very dry sort of objective sources. You know, they they like anyone have subjective biases and opinions. And you talk in the book about uh, numerous examples of those coming through. Just talk about that theme. You know, what what are some other examples of uh, biases that that stand out uh, from what you remember of the research? Well, you know, I'd actually I'd like to take a little bit of a step back and and kind of question this idea or interrogate this idea of of objectivity. Objectivity can mean a few different things in journalism. So it, it can mean, you know, not having any biases or, or or interests or perspectives, which describes nobody in the world. And of course, you know, foreign reporters and producers and so on themselves have their own perspectives, their own blind spots and so on, their their own ideas of what's right and wrong. Everybody does. And those of course, will bleed into their opinions about what information should be double checked, which is versus what should be taken at face value, you know, who's a reasonable person to interview, and so on. So nobody's kind of objective in that purely neutral sense. When journalists talk about objectivity, often they do mean it a, a bit in kind of that way of neutrality, or more than that, kind of as a performative practice. Objectivity is something that's performed and signaled through the language that you use, again, through kind of the the performance of including balance in your reporting of, of getting multiple sides. So there, there's there's some value to that. But at the same time, this is always kind of taken from the perspective often of the countries that they're reporting from, like what, what they think of as obviously being the different sides that should be included, the, the perspectives that should be given airtime, even if, you know, what they're saying is a lie. So, you know, and, and this becomes particularly obvious when reporting on, on wars and things like this. And there's, there's a lot of journals who have talked about 
the way that journalists, you know, American journalists, for example, tend to, without realizing it, uncritically adopt a lot of perspectives from the U.S. government or to, to always include the voice of the U.S. government, even when the U.S. government is very obviously lying to them. And then what happens in, in, in journalism is, is that the way that you get evaluated as a professional and kind of whether you're, let's say, worthy of the, the, the status or the label of producer versus being just a mere fixer or, or even worse, a mere activist is particularly kind of on how well you're able to pull off a performance of objectivity in this way. And this this becomes a way in which I think that foreign reporters are often kind of justifying their higher status, their control over the way that stories are framed and, and so on over fixers is by saying, look, the fixers aren't objective. They aren't able to present things in such a way that looks to, you know, my editor as objective with, you know, the editor's own subjective biases. And so, you know, I need to be here kind of as an intermediary between my fixer and my editor in order to excise their bias from the story because I'm great, more capable of objectivity because I'm not so locally biased. I'm not so caught up in local loyalties and, and so on. And, you know, there's there's some truth to that perspective, I, I would certainly say. But I think it, it's so it's it's important to think about the way that like objectivity talk functions in journalism and, and not to take objectivity kind of just just for granted. And then, you know, a third sense of objectivity that I, I talk about in the book, which is actually the original sense in which Walter Lippmann back in 1922, when he coined the phrase objectivity as applied to, to journalism, meant the original sense of objectivity actually wasn't to do with neutrality. What Lippmann meant by objectivity was kind of a, a cultivated disposition toward always seeking out inconvenient information, like a, a disposition where as a reporter or you know, a social scientist or just a person in the world, you're not cherry picking the information that reinforces your framework for seeing the world. You're always seeking out information that could potentially be challenging it. So then objectivity becomes not an exercise in denying that you have any biases, but actually thinking self-critically about how you're biased, what your blind spots are, you know, what your assumptions are that you're bringing to the table, and then looking for information that might complicate or contradict those. So objectivity in that sense, I think you see definitely on display among both fixers and the reporters they work with, kind of at at, at best, right? You, you do find reporters who aren't just kind of assuming they know from the start what the story is, what Turkish politics are, just relying on these received frames of, you know, it's all about secularism versus Islam, or it's all about the endless conflict between the ethnic Turks and the ethnic Kurds that's just implacable. You know, it, you do find reporters who are trying to get beyond those initial assumptions, who are open to their fixers, challenging their expectations and talking back to them and uh, open to kind of new new contradictory information that will cause them to reframe things and, and to kind of develop a new sense of what's going on in the countries that they're reporting on. And then also very much among among fixers, you, you do see many with kind of this almost kind of adventurous disposition toward wanting to find new worlds and understand them and, and not simply be pushing, you know, their own political agenda or the kind of received wisdom that, that they have or, you know, that their reporters have just in order to satisfy those reporters. So I think it's important to kind of question and interrogate this, this notion of objectivity as well. Yeah, no, some great points there, I think. And just to conclude, obviously, Turkey's pretty turbulent, has been a pretty turbulent place in recent years. 
And there has been a, a ramping up, really, of political pressure in a number of senses, particularly on journalism, of course. I mean, what can you say specifically about how fixers have been affected by this overall darkening of the climate, essentially, this kind of ramping up of a, a crackdown on journalists, both foreign, but particularly, of course, uh, more severely uh, local journalists? How have fixers been affected by that overall climate? Well, first of all, a lot of fixers are themselves reporters who used to work for the domestic press, but have been pushed out, have quit or been fired as their news outlets were either taken over by the government by force and perhaps placed under trusteeship or, or you know, seized in tax evasion cases or, or and, and so on, and then sold off to pro-government businessmen. So a lot of a lot of people who had careers in journalism who were kind of not pro-government have found that they can get by and continue to work as journalists more safely and kind of sustainably as fixers for the international press rather than, you know, jumping from one Turkish news outlet to another, almost playing kind of this game of whack-a-mole with the Turkish authorities as, as they capture more and more of the Turkish media. You, you do find some of these fixers are continuing to engage, to, to work in the foreign and, and domestic media simultaneously, kind of almost as a way of like hedging their bets or, or distributing their professional risk in some ways. And and I, I talk about one one character uh, wh- whom I call Orhan, who kind of has this this background, you know, worked for Sabah before I got taken over in 2007 and kind of one of the early cases of, of government media capture in Turkey. He, in some ways, kind of got frustrated, particularly in, in his early years of working for the the international press where you know he felt like this was a real demotion from from being a a reporter and now a lot of the 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 clients who we worked with would kind of just dismiss him as like this you know embittered Kemalist. This was, of, of course, in the early years, the foreign press tended to be still very much pro or sympathetic toward the AKP and ter- toward Erdogan. And so he kind of, to some extent, adopted a, a kind of cynical, almost like salesman-like approach to his clients, where he would just, again, kind of figure out, okay, what does this client want? What are their assumptions? I'll just feed them exactly the sources that they want with maximum efficient, efficiency and, and minimum effort. But at the same time, he still did have this kind of in disposition of, of an investigative journalist where he he kind of did still want to use journalism in a, in a meaningful way. And so he, he would continue to work for some of these small independent news websites, which, you know, in some cases have have remained kind of too small, not reaching a big enough audience for the government to really bother to throw too many of them in, in jail or to take them over. But those couldn't pay the bills alone. So he kind of used his fixing career to almost subsidize his continued work for the Turkish media. That was Noah Amir Arjuman. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 163. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. 
You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com or Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe and I always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've also got a Slack channel now for the signed up members who want more. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 